good issue for all women. Hello, Happy New Year, although more on that later, and welcome to episode 95 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, and this year I'm putting the ballers into netball. I've, I've joined a netball team. Yay! Have you? Yep, I've not played for 30 years, so I'm clearly going to be amazing. What's your What's your position? I don't know. I used to be a goal defence or mine. wing defence. Mm. Goal defence is lovely. You can only cover like so much of the uh, Yeah, well, the that's, a, that's a good thing about that. Well, the good and bad thing about netball is that you're like, oh, that's happening there. That's not my problem. Yeah. But on the other hand, I want to go in there and they won't let me. Yeah, I'm taking a book. Is that good? Yeah. You've got to cut your nails. I have. You cut can't you. be able to see them above your fingertips from the back. Yeah. Yeah, I used to play netball. Believe what, it or not. Position? Well, you had to at school. Centre, because I was, like, quite quick. Oh, centre was good. Yeah. Mm. But Nippy. I came back one September, probably when we were about 14, and everybody had grown about four inches, <laughs> and I, it, I was, like, just useless for netball. Yeah. Too, way too small for netball. That's when it was my time to shine. Yeah. <laughs> the lanky yeah. fuckers. Anyway, I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I went to cinema yesterday and I had a giggling fit in there that lasted 20 minutes, which I think must be really, really annoying for everybody around me. doesn't often happen to me. I can actually count the incidents. I don't know if it often happens to anyone saying that, but there have been four occasions on which I've completely like, just gone <laughs> for 20 minutes. I love it when people lose it. I'd have been it's very entertained by you. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I saw Jojo Rabbit, but it also happened to me once in Helen Partridge, the film. Which bit? Well, well, when Michael jumps into the sea, which is quite funny, but then Alan describes it as ultimately pointless. That's the bit. <laughs> I just completely lost my shit. I spent uh, ages just going, what about Michael? Yeah. What about Michael? I don't know. I missed the whole end of the film because I was laughing. Also, uh, in the League of Gentlemen film, when they've got Jeff Tips in a, um, <laughs> in a, 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 this kind of device that he's being crushed and he's begging to be let go, and they won't. And then he says, because um, they're always really throwaway lines that will really get me, and he says, oh, at least let me take my coat off, it's boiling in here. <laughs> <laughs> and then the bit where Steve Carell goes, I stabbed a guy in the heart in Anchorman, which is just preposterous. That's a man with a trident. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that bombshell... Yeah. I'm Jen Offord, and I'm the proud owner of a blender. I so, wish uh, you'd said I stabbed a man in the heart. <laughs> I haven't, though. It would be a lie. Would you like me to say it anyway? <laughs> Do you get a blender for Christmas? No, I bought one. In the sales? Yeah. Wowzers. What yeah. have you blended? What's the most exciting combination that you've blended? So I've got a little bit of a smoothie situation at the moment. Bit of kale. I didn't want to mention that, Jen. I thought when it was I the way b- you were sat. When I bought one, I made a lot of soup, and then I found out it was really, really, really hard to clean, so I put it in a cupboard and it lives there. It's, it's very easy to clean. It's not a soup maker, it's a blender. It's, it's a different situation. It's a bit of kale, bit of spinach, pear, banana, almond butter, almond milk, lemon juice. Give it a spritz. Lovely stuff. It's is not it, that lovely. Is it actually gross. lovely stuff? It's no. really gross, actually. It sounds chewy, if I'm honest with you, Joe. It's not chewy, because you blend it. But um, Kale's really hard to blend smooth. It's fine. It's just, uh, it's just not that nice, if I'm honest. The kale's horrible. Oh no, like kale, kale can be delicious. I mean, raw kale is... You have to massage it with olive oil. Oh, get away. I know, it's the wankiest vegetable there is. But you have, if you if massage If I'm massaging it, it something with olive oil, I expect to be fucked at the end of it. <laughs> Not have kale to eat. Uh, decent digestion or a good old shag. <laughs> we know which one Don is going for. Later on, we catch up with the actor and playwright Rosalind Blessed to talk about her two plays, which began in rep at the old Red Lion Theatre on January the 7th. We talk about the joy of dogs and working with family. Want to say no more? I speak to author Sarah Knight on how to do just that. Yes. 
In Journey off- No. Yes. <laughs> in Journey Off the Blocks, I'll be looking forward at some of the key events in women's sport coming up this year. And we rip off the plaster and watch Titanic in this week's Dunleavy Does Disaster. No spoilers, please. I don't want to know how it ends. But first, fire, floods, a leadership race and an angry vegan. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where already this year I've crucified a donkey for looking at me funny while wearing my dead granddad's cardi. That was the donkey. I was naked. I'm still appalled, not only by your behaviour and the donkey's (laughs) behaviour, but also by why that is a story. So 2020 got off to a cracking start. And by that, I mean I didn't wake up with a hangover. The rest of what's occurring does, of course, continue to be a non-stop shit show of increasingly epic proportions. Yep, the year started on Wednesday, and by Friday, World War Three was trending on Twitter, following the US assassination of General Qasim Soleimani, who turned out to be the most popular man in Iran. Now, I, like the majority of people sharing piping hot takes on Twitter, don't know very much about what the terrifying fuck is going on here. But unlike those people on Twitter, I'm just going to stick to the bare facts, and those are... Trump ordered the takedown, Iran is, to put it mildly, mighty pissed off and promising retaliation. Straight after the drone strike, in an unprecedented act of subtlety, Trump simply tweeted a photo of the American flag, presumably because all the ones he took of his arsehole came out blurry. (laughs) He's since found his usual form and has doubled down on a threat to hit cultural sites in Iran should the country strike back. War crime, schmore crime, there's an election to win. To be honest, Trump's nuke thumb twitching like a cock in a brothel isn't even the most terrifying thing that's happening. It's going to be tricky to have World War III if there's no world. And right now, Australia is on fire and Indonesia is underwater. So far, 26 people have died in the Australian bushfires, currently decimating an area almost three times larger than Wales. That death toll figures an estimate because there are people missing. The native animals are suffering horrifically with an estimated billion killed by this disaster. Over in Indonesia, the worst monsoon rains in more than a decade have hit its capital, Jakarta, with rising rivers submerging at least 182 neighbourhoods and landslides on the city's outskirts causing more destruction. The current loss of human life is at least 60. Again, this is likely to increase because the conditions mean rescuers are struggling to locate survivors. It's all beyond heartbreaking and it's been knocked out of the headlines because of political tomfuckery. If you want to do something to help the animals in Australia, then Wires has got an emergency fund that is helping those animals. But I would just say Google how to help. And if you've got any spare cash, maybe chuck it at Australia or Indonesia. And I'd like to know what time does 2021 get here? Not soon enough. If ever. Indeed. Yeah, it looks totally horrific in Australia. You're actually going to make me cry. Talking of fires, the <laughs> Labour leadership race is underway. and it's said you were going to make me cry, <laughs> God's sake. Well, it's early days, but that hasn't stopped Labour Twitter descending into what I'm going to loosely term a debate about who should take over from Jeremy Corbyn, with the favourite candidate being, for many, Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> oh, God. So in the interest of not adding a screaming voice to the mob, I've decided to be as reasonable as possible to everybody, even though I look forward to voting for Jess Phillips enormously. Seconded. The MP for Birmingham Yardley, who incidentally also has the best slogan, Speak Truth, Win Power, is joined in the race by Sir Keir Starmer, who I made a bet in 2015 would be Labour leader within a decade. So, you know, I make a tenner if he wins, swings and roundabouts. Also throwing the hats into the ring, Wigan MP Lisa Nandy, Shadow First Secretary of State Emily Thornbury and Clive Lewis, MP for Norwich. 
all of whom have things to put in their plus column. Several other Labour MPs have expressed an interest in running, including Yvette Cooper, who I would also happily see as leader yeah. of the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. Rebecca Long-Bailey has seemingly been anointed as the replacement of choice by Corbynites. She hasn't announced yet, or she certainly hasn't when we're recording this, and it's Monday. But she faces what's going to be an interesting situation, given much of her potential base, the hard left, doesn't actually have the best record on voting for women. Definitely not standing are Diane Abbott, John McDonnell and Dawn Butler, all three of whom were close to Corbyn, so I don't know what that tells you. Also, David Lammy has ruled himself out, which mm. means that none of the three most prominent black politicians in the country are in the race, which I'm sure bears examination too. Although it's worth pointing out, Lisa and Andy and Clive Lewis are both mixed race. So this still has to qualify as one of the most diverse leadership races I can remember, which we should probably take the time to notice before it all descends into madness. I'm pretty sure we're going to return to this in the coming weeks. I might even write a fucking joke. (laughs) (laughs) If your employer discriminated against you on the grounds of, say, your sexual orientation or the fact that you were pregnant or because of a disability, you'd be taking them to Strasbourg and not for a holiday, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think you've got a couple of weeks to take them to Strasbourg, haven't you? (laughs) I think you've got a couple of weeks. You're going to do it quickly, guys, otherwise you're fucked. Well... You might be surprised to learn this may now also be the case if a person is discriminated against on the grounds of their ethical veganism, as was decided in a tribunal last week. How is that different from, like, you know, your bog-standard veganism? Ethical veganism is where you don't use anything. Like, so you won't wear leather. It's not just about food. It's about your entire lifestyle. You consume nothing that comes from animals. The guy I'm about to talk about, uh, Geordie Kasimitjana, won't take a bus, for example, because it might kill insects. Okay. So in the case of Geordie Kasimitjana, brought against his former employers, the League Against Cruel Sports, who he says fired him because of his ethical veganism, which does seem odd, given their given their vibe. But anyway. The League Against Cruel Sports, but... Any other time, just have that. Yeah, fuck them. (laughs) So he says they fired him because of his ethical veganism. A judge ruled last week that ethical veganism is a philosophical belief and should be protected in law. That is because religion or belief is one of the protected characteristics covered by the Equalities Act. Anyway, I'll come back to that. But FYI, Kasimitjana's former employers claim he was dismissed for gross misconduct and the judge is yet to rule on this. However, of the initial ruling, Kasimitjana said he was really, really satisfied. Now imagine how he's going to feel when he finds out about Greg's new vegan steak bake. He's going to be having the best time. Lovely times. Anyway, I digress. The judge, Robin Possel, ruled in the landmark case that ethical veganism satisfied several tests, including that it is worthy of respect in a democratic society, not incompatible compatible with human dignity and not conflicting with the fundamental rights of others. Now, I don't want to sound like the guy in the pub in Harwich who once told me that as a straight white man, a fox had more rights than him. Not for long, Fat Tony, not for long. (laughs) But that does sound quite vague to me. Could I then argue that supporting Charlton Athletic is worthy of respect in a democratic society? I mean, to be fair, it absolutely isn't, and that was a bad example. But I don't know. I thought it was quite interesting because... To my mind, you know, what he believes is absolutely no more bonkers than most religions. I mean, yes, I agree. But what this was actually, the nub of this was, why he claims that he was being sacked is because he found out that the company's pension fund, some of the money was in shares for a company that did animal testing. Oh. So apparently he spread this around to his colleagues and 
said they should do something about it and then he claims that it was that incident that led to his sacking. I think it's interesting the idea of this ethical veganism because on the one hand, yes, it's really good that you... I mean, I live in Cambridge. A lot of colleges in Cambridge have got their money and this is quite publicly known in some funny places. A lot of the colleges, Trinity College in particular, is independently very wealthy but lots of questions have been asked about having shares in things like Lockheed Martin and stuff like that, which is like one of the largest manufacturers of bombs in America. So there are there are questions to ask. So I think, yes, it's good. That's how you challenge those questions. That's yeah. how you... Because that's the mm. things you don't think about necessarily is where is money and prejudice. But on the other hand, would I be protected? I feel very, very strongly, and I don't buy my clothes from places that I have like manufactured things in sweatshops Mm. you know there's certain shops i just will not go in because of of their rules now if i found out that my pension company would that be as protected as as veganism because i think that's a uh, that's incompatible with human dignity that's worthy of respect so i think it opens up a kind of can of worms it's good that we can challenge this stuff but what is it that will count as a belief it could get all very very subjective exactly that what's quite interesting about it is because it won't count apparently as case law so it's not; it doesn't have quite the same impact as as like case law would. So it's not going to be a precedent. Yeah. So it doesn't set a legal precedent, but it does sort of, as you say, open the door to lots of other potential claims, which which is interesting. I think. And it's swimming in the same area as like the gay cake, isn't it? Mm. The idea yeah. of which I actually think I'd love to swim in some gay cake. <laughs> love it. <laughs> but I actually think that if you want to run your own business and you don't want to say for example put something on a cake i don't think you should be compelled to do something by the government that you actually fundamentally conflicts with your beliefs so much as i don't think religion i, I don't like homophobia and i don't think religion i'm not up for anyone being compelled to say stuff that they don't believe what a hornet's nest it yeah. is absolutely <laughs> As ever, we are recording this on Monday for your ears on Wednesday. So today, Monday the 6th of January, is the start of Harvey Weinstein's criminal trial. In the New York trial, the movie producer is accused of raping a long-time lover who has not been publicly named, and that was in 2013, and of forcibly performing oral sex on his production assistant in 2006. Only a handful of women will be allowed to testify, but scores of women who have alleged sexual misconduct and abuse at Weinstein's hands will be watching from the sidelines. I'm not going to dwell on the very, very, very real concern that Weinstein may not ultimately be held legally accountable for anything because it's too fucking depressing. But however the Weinstein trial pans out, the hashtag MeToo movement that started when the allegations first became public knowledge two and a bit years ago remains vital. In fact, it's now made its way into tech with the rise of hashtag MeToo bots. AI bots that can identify digital bullying and sexual harassment. Because why just believe women? (laughs) (laughs) Just a thing that isn't a thing, sure. The bots use an algorithm trained to identify potential bullying, including sexual harassment, in company documents, emails and chat. Data is then analysed for various indicators that determine how likely it is to be a problem. With anything the AI reads as being potentially problematic, sent to a lawyer or HR manager to investigate, although exactly what's deemed a red flag at the moment remains a company secret. The bot makers say it's not easy to teach computers what harassment looks like due to its linguistic subtleties and grey lines. I mean, they're saying computers, uh. and I'm sensing another Robin Thicke hit. Uh. Isn't that mad? Like, we're going to put this in the hands of, of bots rather than just believe the people who actually come forward and report it. There's a problem in the bagging area. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. 
Maybe now might be the time to mention that we are aware of the case in Cyprus and we are working on getting someone on to talk about it because we haven't mentioned it. And yeah, yeah that's a ma- some of the stuff surrounding that is just just fucking believer. I mean, man, oh man. It's, I mean, it was the jellyfish, Hannah. But yeah. yeah, we'll come back to that. Also, I don't know if you saw the news this morning, Britain's most prolific, that's the BBC quote, not me, uh, the, Britain's most prolific rapist has been... It was like in the news this morning, he's been sentenced to 30 years in prison. Britain's most prolific rapist, 30 years. He's committed 159 sex crimes on men who he met and drugged outside clubs in Manchester, took them home, committed like sexual crimes against them, filmed, and he's been sentenced to 30 years in prison. Wow. Well, it's almost like the law doesn't take rape very seriously. It is, isn't it? What I would say about that is I've seen I've seen some people being, you know, quite sort of, you know, God, those poor blokes, you know, imagine that happening to you. And they're absolutely right. That's a terrible thing to happen to that blokes. But if they could try and hold on to that feeling and apply it next time mm. they see it happening to a woman, that yeah. would be really, really great. Oh, shut up, Hannah. <laughs> Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Feels like the unofficial <laughs> motto of the 2010s. I'm sorry if that, that was a weird segue. <laughs> and the decade closed with the perfect example, Cats. The $95 million star-studded adaptation of the hit musical that set to lose $70 million at the box office. It's a lot of money to spend answering the question, <laughs> do people want to look at cats with tits? I still don't know what the answer is. <laughs> hoping this will make it clearer. I feel the need to say now that no, I've not watched it. I might yet, though, because I'm sure, as you're aware by now, I love a shit film. I think if Dunleavy does dystopia proved anything, it's that I love them even more. <laughs> yeah. Let's go. Well, then we can both watch it, because I'm fairly sure it will be the much-vaunted centrepiece of the BBC's 2021 Christmas offering, like we've all forgotten about a cat wearing a coat made of cats. And maybe one day it'll be like The Room, showing to packed late-night crowds and gradually eking that budget back, £11.95 at a time. Four ninety nine in Peckham. <laughs> 3.50 in Clacton, guys. Stop rubbing it in. <laughs> but it seems unlikely, given the absolutely no pun intended, catastrophically yeah. bad reception it received from critics. Embargoing reviews also proved to be a terrible idea, as dozens of zero and one star reviews popped up online simultaneously, destroying any chance of the film performing well. And also the argument the critics may have been affected by what other critics thought. So what's the lesson here? Oh, yeah, it's people don't like cats with tits. (laughs) Hopefully we can all move on now. I was going to go yesterday and I decided not to because there's quite a lot of stuff in the cinema that I actually want to see at the moment and I saw the review, not even worth a hate watch. (laughs) I'll probably give that a miss. Yeah. So I'm slightly conflicted about this one as I personally don't think it should constitute as news. But here's a story that myself and many others nonetheless found inspiring last week. Ricky Lake made for pretty much the only pleasant reading last week as she made headlines for speaking out about her experience of hair loss. Not that that is a particularly pleasant subject, to be fair, as many of those who subsequently praised her can testify. Lake, most recently seen on our screens as a contestant in Celebrity X Factor, yes, really, that was a thing, posted a picture of herself with a freshly shaved head on New Year's Day saying that she'd been struggling with hair loss for most of her adult life, which she described as debilitating, embarrassing, painful, scary, depressing and lonely, and had at times left her feeling suicidal. She said that she wanted to finally unshackle herself of this quiet hell. Now... 
Contrary to popular belief, hair loss in women is not uncommon. In fact, the American Academy of Dermatology estimates that 40% of women over 40 have visible hair loss. So it will probably have meant quite a lot to a lot of women experiencing the same thing. It's not the first time Lake has railed against traditional beauty standards, having always been considered larger than most women in the public eye. Good for her, I say. Long may she continue to do so. Yeah, yeah. Mm, Agreed. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we reel from the staggering information that labiaplasties could be leading to pain for women because... Brace yourselves, basic anatomical research hasn't really figured out where nerves are in the vulva. No way. (laughs) No, I know, it's crazy. With textbooks rarely describing the dorsal nerves going to the clitoris. Because penises. New research by Paul Pinn at the Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas has found that crucial nerves are at greater risk of injury during vulval surgery than many surgeons realize. Pinn's collaborator on the project, his daughter Jessica, who is also at Baylor, had a labiaplasty and claims the dorsal nerves of her clitoris were cut during the procedure. I know, I'm sorry, Hannah is boking, <laughs> leading to a loss of clitoral sensation. So, in case you're wondering, labiaplasties are a cosmetic surgery to reduce the size of the fleshy labia and are increasingly popular, like scarily so. Mm. Between 2003 and 2013, Australia saw a threefold rise, the UK a fivefold rise, and the US saw almost the same fivefold increase between 2011 and 2018. Why women feel the need to do this is a topic for another week, but the lack of information on clitoral anatomy, meaning many surgeons performing these procedures don't even know the nerves are there, is outrageous, if not surprising. Talking of unsurprising, Jessica Pinn told New Scientist that... In the years following my surgery, I was repeatedly told my loss of clitoral sensation couldn't have happened. I was told by the doctors I turned to that I just needed to relax, just needed to fall in love. Can you imagine any doctor telling any man that a loss of penile sensation meant he just needed to fall in love? Rhetorical question, clearly. I mean, funny, but they know, like, if you have a, a a breast augmentation and they have to, sorry, Hannah, move your nips around, because they're just saying that because she looks like... She looks a theatre. Horrified. <laughs> they say that this might fuck up sensation and whatever, and you might not be able to breastfeed mm. and things like that. So it's not like they don't know that if you cut things off, it might lead to the difference things being, going wrong. They know those things are there, Jen. Yeah, no, I'm I'm in very much in agreement with you. I yeah, horrific. Hannah, I don't like it. (laughs) Hi, I am joined on the phone by Sarah Knight. Hello, Sarah. Hello, thank you for having me. Hi, all the way over in Brooklyn. What time is it there now? Oh, I am not in Brooklyn. I am in the Dominican Republic. Oh, lovely. And it's noon. Oh, okay. Because one of the reasons that I just thought I've got to talk to Sarah about this book is when. I opened it up and inside it, it said that you don't agree to doing things before 10.30 in the morning. And I thought, this this is exactly my kind of woman. We need to speak more. You know, I am very firm about that life rule and it's serving me well. Listeners may recognise you because we had you on the podcast before for your book, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, which I I have to say uh, was a very good read, but I was already a little bit on board with Not Giving a Fuck. The book that you have just written now, which is called Fuck No, is a book that I need because I am dreadful at saying no. 
And it is a book telling us that really we need to be saying no more often. It's a really good read. Well, thank you. It actually really turns out to be an excellent bookend to the first book in the series because the No Fucks Given Guides now, they now number five books with The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck being number one and Fuck No being number five. And those two really are the most complimentary uh, in, in the series. So I, I got a lot of emails and messages and voice mails and DMs from people saying, I get it. I get it. You're telling me I don't have to give a fuck. But how do I explain that to other people? And so <laughs> that is how Fuck No came about. Well, it's also quite timely because it's January and people are looking at making resolutions. And also America looks like it might be about to say the big fuck no to the to the man in charge, which I'm absolutely delighted by the sound of. Well, I've been waking up every morning for the last three years asking, is Trump impeached yet? So, um, you know, I'm hoping today's the day. I don't know. I haven't looked at the news. As as you know, I did not get up very long before this book. So. <laughs> That's when you write the book that's called Fuck Yes, isn't it? When that happens. Indeed. Why I struggle with saying no, I think, is two things. And they're both a socialization thing. The first thing is because I'm a woman and we're expected mm-hmm. to be nice and be kind. Mm-hmm. And the second and is... to serve to serve others. Absolutely. And the second is because I was raised a Catholic and therefore yeah, you're taught that rejecting, I mean, just by way of an example, if we rejected any food, our grandma would say to us, oh, you know, there are babies elsewhere that are, are starving and you think, oh God, yeah, I better eat this. I mean, the two didn't like make any difference to each other, but actually yeah. saying no to stuff leaves me with the most extraordinary guilt. That's That's quite common, isn't it? It is. And in fact, I I say in the book that guilt is the most common and strongest, uh, you know, motivation that we tend to have for saying yes, when we want to say no. And, um, you know, we also sort of fall into one of four categories. And it sounds like you're a bit of a people pleaser. Uh, the other three are overachievers, uh, pushovers, and FOMOers, people who have a fear of missing out. So in, in the course of the book, I address all four of those prototypes of uh, people who have a hard time saying no, and then how to you know, reprogram your mind, basically going from yes man to no ma'am, by you know, releasing yourself from a lot of that guilt that you feel and a sense of obligation when you really aren't obligated to anybody. And one of the tricks is, just try it because I'm the one who's guinea pigged all of this for you for the last five years. And I can tell you that when you just try it, most people just accept it. It's really not yeah. as scary as you as you make it out to be in your own mind. Yeah. There is also the question of the sort of your private life of saying no and your professional life. And I do struggle with saying no there. But I think that comes from being self-employed for a long time and the fear mm-hmm. that if you said no, that somebody wouldn't ask again. Yeah. And for example, I address uh, this concept of FOMO, of fear of missing out in two different ways. One in sort of a, you know, a dinner party that you don't really want to go to. You're a little tired, but you're afraid that if you don't go, you'll miss out on some fun or people will talk about you behind your back or you won't be in the photos that go up on Facebook yeah. the next day. But And that I don't have a problem with. I would much rather just do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I do not have a problem with fear of missing out in social situations. But I do historically have this problem in my professional life. And it's because I'm afraid that if I say no now, the opportunity will disappear forever. And so I address that in the book with a couple of different ways, one of which I call um, 
the no that leaves the door open or the no for now. And it's a way to be able to say no to something that doesn't work for you in the moment, but indicate your willingness to be asked again or your desire to be asked again when circumstances are better for you. So there's a lot of uh, nuance to saying no. You know, there's the hard no, which is we're ending the conversation. No, I can't. No, I don't want to. No, I can't afford it. Um, no, I don't have time. And then there are these other no's that I go into detail on. And I think the no for now is really useful for people like us who have that fear of missing out on something in a professional situation. Yeah. Well, our, our boss, the comedian Sarah Millican, she has talked about saying no quite a lot and how when she made the decision to start saying no to stuff, it absolutely mm-hmm. changed her life. And she said that she gave me the tip of if when somebody asks if you want to do something, if your gut reaction is no, but because it's a long way away, you think, oh, yeah, well, maybe I'll change my mind between now and then. Just say no right from the start because you just then left trying to get out of something, which is actually well- more awkward. Yeah, I mean, she knows what she's talking about. I call this uh, Baby Shower 2010. Um, And basically, a friend of mine uh, sort of asked me, suggested that maybe I host her baby shower uh, in in 2010. And I said, "Uh, okay. And I, you know, I just, in the moment, I couldn't think of a way to say, I'm not your gal for that. Um, And she knew that. And I think she probably, it was probably just an idle suggestion on her part. And she wasn't really expecting me to say yes. And I wasn't expecting me to say yes. And then I did because I was guilty and nervous. And then I had to host a baby shower. And then it all fell apart because, well, there's a story I tell in the book. But anyway, (laughs) this resulted in what I call baby shower 2010, which is something that I think of as sort of a talisman so that the next time somebody asks me to do something, I think, remember what happened? with baby shower 2010 do you want that to happen to you again no then you should say no right up front and it really it really helps it's interesting as well isn't it because I've actually seen lots of articles about the power of saying yes because the idea is that you are you know don't fear things grasp things but actually that's kind of saying yes in a different way isn't it it's saying yes to something that you haven't tried before rather than saying yes to something that you fundamentally don't want to do Funnily enough, my literary agent is also the agent for Shonda Rhimes, uh, who wrote a book called The Year of Yes a couple of years ago, which is exactly as you as you describe. You know, it's saying yes to things that you have historically been afraid of or saying yes to things to create new opportunities in your life. Um, And it obviously has worked out very well for her. She's one of the most successful women in Hollywood. But I think my agent is smartly hedging her bet (laughs) (laughs) on the client side. I might write one that says, say maybe, and just fill oh, the no, middle Oh, no, no, we cannot. Maybe is, maybe is a four-letter word. Yeah, it definitely is. When you decided to, to start conducting uh, your project of saying no more often, I mean, how, how soon did you think, oh, actually, this is, this is the best decision I ever took? Almost right away. Um, I write about this uh, pretty extensively in the guilt chapter of the book, where I talk about the fact that most of this guilt is coming from inside the house. It's really your own head. It's that Catholic upbringing you talked about. You know, it's this people-pleasing attitude of, I can't disappoint others. I want to be helpful, even if it hurts me. And if you can overcome that part, when you actually say your no to other people, I would call it 75% of the time, they just accept it. 
And then, and that makes it easier to do it again, because now you feel good about it. And you've, you know, you've been conditioned. It's like exposure therapy. And then when it gets to those times that people push a little harder, they push against your no, or they ask you to reconsider, you are in a better mental state and mental position to be able to just gently push back, you know, and, and if somebody says, oh, I really wish you could make it, you, you can say, yeah, me too, but it's just not going to work out. And then if somebody really puts the guilt trip on hard, my advice is to say, you know, I think that you not being able to take no for an answer says more about you than it does about me. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Certain personalities on your on your list um, of, of the reasons for saying no, one of them is just I am a pushover. And that is a certain personality type. Is that the hardest person to, to get through to that you need to say? No? I actually I don't think it needs to be that hard because pushovers are really defined by the fact that they are indecisive. And so when you have an overachiever or um, a people pleaser, or even someone experiencing fear of missing out, they tend to make the active decisions to say yes because of what they want to accomplish or what they're afraid of not happening. Whereas a pushover never really makes a decision. And that's really their only problem. So if you can say to that person, hey, historically, you wind up doing things that you don't really want to do because you didn't just make the decision for yourself, that's a, a much easier thing to do. Making a decision for yourself is a lot easier than explaining it to other people. So I think that the pushovers that wind up reading this book are going to recognize the, these habits in themselves and be able to say, oh, I'm allowed to just put, raise my hand and say, this is what I want or this is what I don't want. Yeah. When you say no to things, sometimes I always feel like I need to explain why I'm saying no to something. And that's not really the case, is it? I don't need to tell people I just went to the bank and there's no money in there. So no, I can't come out to dinner. I should just no, be able to no. say no without having to bring the sort of the additional baggage. But I think that's also where I where I struggle. No in itself doesn't seem sufficient. I need to make an excuse for the fact that ours I'm no. is not to reason why <laughs> you're so um, right. you know <clears throat> I'm a big fan of just a simple no without an explanation I also think what you're doing is you've come to the decision based on all of these reasons that you have in your own head what you need to do is communicate that decision to other people they don't need a reason and a lot of them don't care so that's another thing that I, you know, that I talk about in Fuck No is that you might be creating a whole conversation in your head that isn't even necessary because if you just say, no, sorry, won't be there, have fun, um, you don't need to necessarily explain why. And sometimes you don't want to explain why because you're embarrassed about the reason or you just don't feel like people need to know your business or maybe you think the person is likely to argue with you. And this is what I say. If you give, if you don't give a reason, then nobody can argue it. Yeah. And we don't have time to argue our reasons. So just say no. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's a great quiz in, in this right at the start. And it, I think the question, the, the first question in it is, um, your boss offers you a promotion that comes with more responsibility and a better title, but no additional pay. I mean, that is the universal problem facing a lot of women. And I... Actually, I can't tell you how long I thought about what the answer with that to, to that question would be for me because your gut instinct is no, that's terrible. That the answer would be no, but then you, right. then you you start rationalising. You think, but maybe if you got a better title, then maybe you could go to another organisation. So maybe it mm -hmm. would be worth it. And yes, sort of that quiet voice is is your own worst enemy. I think in those situations. 
Yeah, and, you know, there's something to be said for playing the long game and for strategizing. And I talk about there's a there's a section in the book on sort of workplace transactions, business and other transactions. And I talk about negotiation, which is saying no to reset the bar in your favor. And, you know, that can up to include walking away, you know, not just saying, no, I don't want to have that promotion, but no, I don't want to have this job anymore um, and making somebody chase after you. And it actually... It, it's a really um, misunderstood thing, no, as a negotiating tactic, and yeah. I think probably more so for women. But a lot of the time, if you make the calculation in your head about how badly the person on the other end of the negotiation wants or needs what you have to offer, you might start to see things in a different light and realize that saying no is actually a, a path toward getting what you want. Absolutely. So this is book five, uh, and this is the end, the definitive or is it the end? Is there another book in you or is the answer to that? Fuck no. Well, there's uh, this is like one of those wishy-washy maybes. Um, <laughs> there is another No Fucks Given guide coming, but it is a journal. So in addition to the five books that I have on sale right now, there are two journals already, the Get Your Shit Together journal and the Calm the Fuck Down journal. So early next year, I'm going to finish um, the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck journal because that book has been such a bestseller all over the world for five years that we realize people will probably like to have the journal too. So that's kind of a, a middle middle distance, uh, no fucks given guide. And then I actually have a different kind of book under contract in the US and the UK. It's an essay collection. And that is all I will say about it for now. Sarah, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you as ever. Thank you so much. This was great fun. Oh, hey, if you are wondering where and when you can see us next, well, strap in because I am about to tell you. Our next gig is actually on Sunday up in Newcastle, but that is sold out. So apologies if you missed out. You need to be quick. And in that case, you should come and see us on Valentine's Day, aka to normal people, February the 14th, when we will be back at King's Place in London with two very special guests. Now then, we have already booked them, but... I am not at liberty to say. And you could push me and be like, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. Tell me. But I would absolutely not have just given you a clue as to who one of them might have been. Anyway, you can find out details of that gig and all our forthcoming gigs at standardissuepodcast.com. We would love to see you there. We are joined by playwright and actor Rosalind Blessed. Hello. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm also with Jen. Hello. And Hannah. Hello. Rosalind, you've got not one, but two plays coming to the Old Red Lion Theatre on January the 7th. Please tell us a bit about them. First of all, the delights of dogs and the problems of people. It pretty much does what it says on the tin, to be (laughs) honest. I mean, it really is a a study in how glorious dogs are. And it's, it's looking at the simple, supportive love that you get from person to to dog and dog to person and the very complicated and in this case very destructive love between a a person and a person a human and a human so the delights of dogs and the problems of people is really a study in a relationship taking it from the beginning to the end going back and forth in time and looking at what can lead uh, an initially quite successful relationship down a very, very wrong path mm-hmm. and how easy that is. Uh, and it's not, it really isn't a, a story of, of, of monster and victim. 
life would be much easier if it was that simple. Abusers don't come ringing a bell, you know, you don't... You don't Otherwise we wouldn't fall for them. Well, ex- well quite, yes, yeah. ex- exactly. And uh, quite often uh, utterly unaware of it themselves, I, I believe. They don't realise how badly their, their love has become tainted and twisted and possessive and all of those really fun things. And also, because I have personally experienced uh, some abusive relationships in, in my life, and I always found it very difficult to forgive myself for that. Far more difficult to forgive myself, actually, than, than the partner. I could always see w- where they'd gone wrong or what had happened to them. And, but I was always like, what, what's wrong with you? Why do you keep letting, letting this happen to you? You must be so weak. You must be so stupid. That's insidious in society and particularly the media, mm. the way they talk about coercive relationships and domestic violence. Mm. A lot of onus on the victim. Why, why doesn't she leave is such a you, why ridiculous they, question. Why did they stay? Why yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's circular and, as you say, insidious is, is exactly the word because who you are as a person gets eroded bit by bit by bit. And so, yes, the person who got into the relationship in the first place into what they believe is a, is a seemingly good relationship would never let themselves be treated so so badly. But by the time the abuse starts to happen in a large way, you, you're diminished in who you are and you don't have defences. So it's actually incredibly easy to fall into. And therefore, going back, because this is, it is a work of fiction, but but it is an accumulation of experiences. So I'm I'm writing very, very truthfully from it. And going back to work on it, as I would on any other text, looking at the logic of it, it's had a twofold thing of just, as well as being an acting exercise, made me go, oh, God, no. I don't think this was my fault. I think maybe I'm all right. So it kind of gave you a bit of realisation, mm. and I'm sorry, it's a terrible word, but maybe some closure? Absolutely. And, yeah, I, I, I guess it's a, it's a word that gets used, but but that but that's exactly right. It really enabled me to, to, to move on. And the reason I keep doing this, because this, this has had a few incarnations, though this is a, it's a new production. We have a great director, Caroline Devlin, who's just wonderful. She's exactly the right person for it. We're of, the, we're of an age... We've been through some shit, you know, <laughs> we understand. We talk each other's language, and she's just, she's a wonderful eye on it. I get to work with one of my very, very, very dearest friends, Duncan Wilkins, who plays my, my partner in, in in the show. And because, I mean, it really helps a lot to have such trust in, in the person you're working with, because not only is he a fine and a su- really superlative actor, but he is also, <laughs> I know he loves me, and I know he's on my side. Yeah. So it makes it, you know, saying the awful things makes it a, a lot easier because we know we're a team and we're together. But the reason I keep coming back to this play is because I'm sorry, it just it it hasn't changed. No. Mm. This problem is not going away. It may not be the most fashionable thing in in, in the world right now, but it, it just it's it's everywhere, and it's um, and I know from past productions coming off stage, and people come up and tell me their stories, or they would write to me, or and it just. There's a lady who came up to me in, in tears saying, you've unlocked something, that, a door that I've had closed for 25 years. And men as well, not just women. Uh, and I think it's a lot more widespread than even the statistics would lead us to, to believe, really. Yeah. Let's, mm. Slightly brighter note, I'm not going to lie to you, <laughs> I've just written the word dogs in capital letters That's with an true. exclamation mark. Is there a dog on stage? <sighs> now, I would love to tell you that there was a real doggy dog 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 on stage, but no, they, the dogs are played by by the actors. But yes, dogs. Yeah, I mean, what's your favourite kind? 
Well, I mean, I love I love all dog I love all animals, and of all animals, I love dogs the best. And of all breeds of dogs, I love stuffies the best. Stuffies oh, are amazing. Mm-hmm. So, so my uh, uh, dogs are in both my plays uh, in in a, a similar sort of role. So they are both rescue stuffies that I write about because I write what I know when I have rescue stuffies. That's what happens. How many good for you have? because uh, <laughs> when I used to work, um, I used to work at local newspaper. Every time we would ring like the local rescue places up for a story or something or a photo, they'd be like, oh, God, can you plug the staffies? Because there's loads of them. There's literally loads of them. Why so many staffies when they're so lovely? I don't know. I think part of it is to do with there was a period in which they were really pop trendy and popular and therefore people got one without thinking that they actually had to look after a dog. So Mm. I think it's quite Mm. a lot of that. They've been monstered as well. They've absolutely been monstered. They have. They have. They're not. They're such soft, silly dogs. Yeah, I mean, these are not dogs that should be mistreated and oh my god fought for god's sake i mean they, they yeah it just I, I, my brain can hardly sort of what they called you dogs uh, right okay so so sam is the staffy and milo is the lurcher i unfortunately just lost two of my of my girlies oh, my crumb who was who was who was a jack russell cross and mini pin who was a mini pin. So that was like, it was pretty, this is the RSPCA named her. It's like, that's basically like calling a Labrador Labrador. <laughs> but it really suited her and I couldn't change I her love name. lurchers. <laughs> I went to, see, went to see my best friend yesterday and he's got a lurcher. And after like getting massively overexcited and jumping all over me. You. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for about 20 minutes. He then, um, uh, and we were talking about the election, mm. obviously not me and the dog, me and my friend. And then there was a period in which he was like, are you all right? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And he was like, we, I said, I was just looking at his ears. Just his ears are so amazing. Yeah. I just completely zoned out on him for about 20 minutes. <laughs> that's, that's what you need, need after talking about the election. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That's, just that's, looking at those ears. <laughs> okay, let's reluctantly move on from dogs, but yeah. excitedly to Lullabies for the Lost, okay, which is yes. your companion play. It is. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Well, my character runs through both. Okay. But in a sort of parallel university type way, so they're not like that. It's not a sequel. Once again, it's 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 the it's the same personality. It's the same person, but in different circumstance. And she is one of eight stories that are told on on stage. Eight stories of mental health struggles, different ones. So these these souls are all collected together by being stuck in their own self made limbo. As you do in that, I mean, I've, I've had I've had a lot of uh, mental health issues, and even if you know what the problem is, it's very easy to find yourself just repeating the same pattern over mm. and over. Yep. And it, there's something comforting and familiar in it as well. I but mean, it's different gets, this time. But this time, it'll yeah. be di- yes, it's the hook, isn't it? Change so. is terrifying, even if change mm. would be better. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely, it's the it's the unknown. So this is why they're they're in this protective bubble. Yeah, they're trying to work it out, and if they if they work it out, they can leave. It's a pretty simple sort of concept. But it, it, it's a way to study a, a wide-ranging collection of issues. Once again, it's a, bit, it's a bit like the domestic abuse. It's not going anywhere. This is something... I'm not saying anything particularly new or innovative. Just that's something that's commonplace, but no less devastating just because it is um, because it is common. Yeah, you're tackling some really hefty topics. <laughs> I know, but there's lots health. of jokes, though. <laughs> I loads promise. Of jokes, loads of lots. <laughs> there is depression, <laughs> mental health mm. issues, anorexia, domestic yeah. violence, mm. and as you've mentioned, it's all, a lot of it is based on personal experience. Absolutely. How do you go about making that entertaining? Well, I mean, this is this is this is the the thing. The um, I mean, I'll come back to the anorexia tale because the anorexia tale and the tale of miscarriage are not my stories. Everything else 
is based, it's, it's fragmented and given to the mouths of, of, of six other characters. I've always had, like, total trench humour. I think what makes them appealing for, for, for the audience is, I, I think, by, by treating them with, with, with humour, it just it stops it becoming a lecture, I hope. And through just being, like, boldly honest with things, I think it enables the audience to also just go, yeah, yeah, kind of me too, yeah, I yeah. get that. And you're allowed to laugh at it because it's your story. Yeah. And, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think there's gallows humour in a lot of, of, yeah, of life. Mean, and But yeah. only if you've experienced it, then you can laugh about m- mental health. See, it's not laughing at the characters. It's laughing at the ludicrous yeah. things that we allow ourselves to be caged by. Mm-hmm. So I'll take my story, for example. So it's not laughing at the woman with bulimia. It's laughing at the ludicrousness of what it actually is. And by doing that diminishing its power because mm. it and it is also very easy to sort of get into this thing that suffering makes you just a little bit worthy just a little mm. bit clever a little bit you know we feel a little bit deeper than everyone else and it's just oh, it's just not it's just bullshit you know you can just it's so easy to let your life go by for ridiculous r- reasons i mean taking once again this, this character with 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 the bulimia is it's this one is pretty much a rage against how much time and energy is wasted because being raised to believe that women's value, value is in how they look in their shell and not like against you know, talents or brains or kindness or any of the stuff that really matters. You intellectually know those are the things that should matter, but you, in your gut you believe that unless you're attractive enough, thin enough, then you will have no value because that was insidious, insidious again. But that's what you were sort of taught from a, mm. a, from a child who grew mm. up in the Miss World era and the, the, you know, the Price is Right and, you know, the Dolly Girls. and mm-hmm. It's uh, not like anything we talk about every week, is it? No, <laughs> I say exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly, it's not yeah. anything new, but it's also not going anywhere. No, it's not going anywhere. If anything, well, it's getting a bit worse. You say that worse. about Miss World because, I mean, I've seen this weekend and it was treated as a very positive story. Well, I almost suggested it for Bush Telegraph until I was like, oh, hang on. Yeah, mm. a positive story about how the fact that Miss Jamaica mm. won Miss World and Miss Nigeria. Nigeria was so ecstatically happy that a woman of colour had won it that she didn't care that it wasn't her. Yeah. And that is a nice positive story, you know. Yeah, but yeah, at the same point, yeah. it's yeah. fucking Miss World. Yeah. And I'm like, I know, oh, I feel exactly. really conflicted now. Yeah. No, uh, well, absolutely. Well, you know, nothing is ever bloody straightforward, I know. I think another important topic that both plays, obviously I haven't seen mm. them yet, but both plays seem to play on and to use is loneliness and isolation. Mm. So is that something that you felt when you've been go- going through shit? I think it's one of those those traps of, of depression is that you really don't want to see anyone and you're sort of living with shame and you want to to hide it and hide yourself and you don't have the energy to go out and see people and at the same time become increasingly lonely as, as, as a result. You know, Facebook and Instagram, I mean, I don't bloody look at Instagram, but the perception of, 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 of life now is that everyone else is successful and everyone else is happy and everyone else is doing something and that you must just be a pile of dog shit. That you're, so nothing against dog shit, that's fine. We love it. <laughs> comes out of dog, that's fine. <laughs> but like in comparison, you know, and it's, it's, very, it's very easy to get yourself cut off 
and not not want to you, you know just get just get smaller and smaller and 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 disappear and disappear so both plays are a bit of a family affair and mm. your mum Hildegard Neal is on stage with you and your dad Brian Blessed is an executive producer <laughs> how have you found working as a family uh you know we work really well as a family um i've worked with both my parents before i've acted with uh with dad, I've been directed by dad. I've been directed by my mum. What's it like being directed by your parents? Oh well, I isn't mean, that just childhood? Yeah, yeah, basically. basically. Yeah, yeah. adolescence. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember I was uh, directed by my mother when I was in my earlyish twenties, playing Sylvia Plath in a play called Letters Home, which was all about. Sylvia Plath's tempestuous relationship with her mother. Uh, <laughs> so it was a lot of my mother going, well, I really sympathise with Sylvia's mother here. And I'd be like, nah, I kind of see where Sylvia's coming from. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was a trial by fire. <laughs> but no, I mean, the, the thing is, I just, uh, because my mother, oh, that's so trite, but my mother's such an inspiration for me getting into the theatre. She really, really was. She's just an extraordinary artist. So I feel completely safe in her hands. I'm just not interfering with this. I've, I've written her part. She's changed it all around. I'm like, Mum, do what you want. <laughs> do what you like. I will just see you when you finish fiddling with it, and I'll just say yes, because that is the wisest thing to do, always say yes. Because she knows better than me. She always has. And Dad's just great. He was lovely. He he came to a very, very early on reading of uh, Lullabies for the Lost a couple of years ago now, I think, was like a first sort of foray into it. And it just chimed with him. He also has had um, struggles. When he was a, a young man, he had a breakdown. And he, he's written about it, which, mm-hmm. I think is, uh, which I think is great. Uh, that's one of the things in this play as well. There's, there's a lot of men in Lullabies for the Lost because men's mental health is, if anything, more of a problem so I, I admire my dad, especially a man of his generation. Actually, you know what? I thought say. that, absolutely. Because mm. I can remember when Bill Oddie did a programme about having mental mm. health problems yeah. and it, like, shocked the world that That's people were like, oh, my God, there's a man talking about his mental health yeah. on the yeah, telly. Yeah. And that was probably 20 years ago. So That's yeah. right, yeah. Good for him. Yes, I remember that. It was. Yeah, it was. Mom, it wasn't it? His, his mum, well, he did Who Do You Think You Are, didn't he? And then he did a documentary mm. about... Yeah. yeah, it was like, I think, Who Do You Think You Are? Like, yeah, about because like, his mum... opened mom... up some, like, opened a can of worms. Yeah. That, like, yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. So, so, so there you go. And, and he's just been brilliant ever since. I think he, he, he slightly wanted to direct it and now he's like, settle down. <laughs> can you always I love you very much. In... I always have a wonderful director for, <laughs> for the play. So I can't do can it. you always tell when he's in the audience? Oh, he, he's actually really good and he's very quiet and he's very gentle. <laughs> but I remember this. like When I was, at, when I was in the third year at drama school, Dad was like, well, I'll just come in. I'll be really quiet. You won't even know I'm there. I'll be like a mouse. And it was true, and he was. And he went and sat in the audience. But he was also, he wore a lemon yellow like, jumper. And it was like, there was just a sun out there. Like a great big beardy sun. So poor, like, everyone in that, everyone in my year was still like, oh my God, there's Brian Blessed. He's right there. I was like, Dad. It's true. You were very quiet, so you didn't laugh. So that was, <laughs> that was unhelpful. But we were incredibly visible, which was also unhelpful. But no, he's 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 um, 
Oh, he's a great. He's the, he's a great audience um, audience member. But my mum's actually the the vocal one in an audience. She doesn't care. She yeah. like she'll hoot away. Also, like the really obscure things, she'll find really funny. <laughs> I'll be like, that's yeah, that's mum. That's mum. <laughs> I'm sorry. Your impersonation of your dad just reminded me of that that thing that he did on the telly where they were like training to go to Mars. Oh, and they yeah. put him in that gyro thing, oh, and yes. he threw up in the most Shakespearean <laughs> fashion. It was so amazing. It was real. Whoa! Well, I mean, if you're going to do it, do it. <laughs> Absolutely, I love it. Yeah. I'm a big proponent of vomiting. I can get behind that. <laughs> Rosalind, mm. where can people find out more about you and your work and these particular runs at the Old Red Lion? If you look on the Old Red Lion website and go to the theatre and what's on, we have uh, all the information there and tickets because they're on alternate nights so it's in like mini rep okay. on a Saturday there's you, you get both of them but otherwise it's alternate nights and you can if you want to look at uh, more of Delights of Dogs that has a little website on ros with a z r-o-z blessed dot com um, and, uh, and and just look out for little bits and bobs which I'll be uh, feeding out through Twitter do you do the Twitter what are you on I Twitter do on rubbish at Twitter but I am Rosalind Blessed there, I don't think there's, a, there's, don't, there's too many of us in the <laughs> world I don't know maybe there are <laughs> if you were another Rosalind Blessed and you're listening to this please do get in touch yeah <laughs> yeah I'm very territorial about my name though so just be careful please don't get in touch yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rosalind thank you so much thank for chatting you. with us you play ball like a girl go on do one kid Jenny off the blocks Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we run in slow motion across a beach towards what I assume is an impending finish line. Except it's a new year, so it's actually more of a start line. I've sort of fucked this right up already, haven't I? Anyway, we're talking all things women's sport as ever. And that dramatic opening sequence is inspired, of course, because it's an Olympics year. My favourite type of year. Props to Vangelis for Chariots of Fire, which you just heard there. I've got to tell you that the video for that is splendid. Your man on the piano is actually smoking a fag while he's inspired to tinkle the old ivories in homage to elite athleticism, and I can respect that. We'll have a little canter through some of the highlights coming up over what I'm calling 2020 Q1, because there is too much going on over the whole year to wrap up right now. There's a lot... And actually, because it's an Olympic year, all the smaller stuff that you might ordinarily be less fussed about carries a bit more weight because there's qualifying for the Olympics tied up in in a lot of that. So the year's first big sporting event is, as ever, the Australian Open, and that starts next Monday. I'm not going to talk about it in too much detail now, as we'll be covering that next week. For me, basically, all every Grand Slam is ever about these days is whether or not Serena Williams will get that elusive title she needs to equal Margaret Court's record. But it's getting a bit long now, to be honest. I'm calling it now. I'm going to say no, because I like to manage my own expectations. It's what comes of supporting Charlton Athletic, unfortunately. Got to be tough with yourself. Anyway, if you're an insomniac or new parent or retired or just really, really love tennis, that's broadcast in the UK by Eurosport. And you don't even have to subscribe to the channel to watch it. You could just get a month of their Eurosport player for 6 99 and watch it all online 
which is actually not a bad deal at all. We've also got the Netball Nations Cup coming up on January the 19th and the Women's Six Nations on February the 2nd. Both of those will be available to watch on Sky. And Six Nations basically goes on forever, so we'll try to come back to that in more detail as well. I remember back in 2016, the inclusion of Rugby Sevens in the Olympics had a bit of a knock-on effect on the Six Nations that year. So it will be interesting to see if the situation has gotten a bit better since then, given improved coverage and whatnot. There's all sorts of athletics going on throughout February as well with the British Indoor Championships. I'd imagine that will be on the BBC, but it's actually in Glasgow. So an opportunity to watch something in the real world too. Something you've heard me harp on about quite a bit on this podcast is the lack of funding for certain Olympic sports, especially team sports. And I think that is shite. That's because of this no win, no fee policy that UK sport has, which I think is shite. GB Basketball have been awarded diddly squat for the Tokyo Olympics, so it's not going to be easy for them to qualify ever because that's what happens when you don't invest in something but anyway the women's team have qualifying events between the 6th and 9th of february in china i should say that following a public consultation last year it was announced that uk sport would relax its no compromise approach to funding after tokyo so i'm hopeful that their situation will improve in march there's more athletics events going on as well as boxing qualifiers and the para swimming world series begins but also the football season will be hotting up then with fa cup quarterfinals on the 15th and champions league quarterfinals on the 24th to 25th and you've got to feel a bit sorry for the teams involved in all of those additional competitions as well as the domestic league it's the kind of thing certainly male football managers get very upset about thank god the festive pile-up is over and done with eh A couple of quick mentions before we wrap up today. First of all, congratulations to GB women's hockey player Alex Danson, who has returned to the team after 18 months out recovering from a head injury. The 34-year-old injured herself by hitting her head against a brick wall while on holiday in what sounds like a really innocuous fashion, to be honest, which is a bit scary. But she's back, which is great news as we go into the Olympics this summer. Perhaps it's a bit late in the day for her to be 100% in time for that, but she is a bit of a legend in the sport, so it's great that she's able to return full stop. Also, can I get a whoop whoop for Sarah Winkless, who will become the first ever woman to umpire the Oxford and Cambridge boat race this year? But how will she do it? Won't her tits and emotions get in the way? Lols, Twitter, you dickheads especially the guy who wrote the female invasion of men's lives continues and spelt female like the especially shitty part of the male online that's another thing you can watch by the way not the sidebar of shame i don't recommend that unless you want to lobotomize yourself with your own thought processes but yes the women's race because those bitches get everywhere will be televised again by the BBC on March the 29th. That's all from me this week. Next week, I'll be gabbing on a bit more about the Australian Open, so please do join me for that. And let me know what you're looking forward to and seeing this year, or what you'd like to hear more about in this very section by shouting at me in a nice way on Twitter. I am at InspiraGen. So, more sport next week. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster did you make us draw like one of your French girls this week? Uh, We watched the film of comedy accents and hindsight irony, Titanic. This is actually the first time I have ever seen Titanic in its entirety. I don't know when it came out. Was it about 1994, something like that? It was like 97. 97. 
Was it 97? Mm. Okay, well, that is interesting because I would say that the release of Titanic was a bit like the death of Princess Diana for me in that it really drove home the point to me that I'm not at all like many of my peers because I was like, I don't understand why everybody's so excited about this film. But obviously I hadn't seen it and I did decide that I was never going to see it. I made one of those decisions, I'm never going to watch Titanic like my dad never watched Sound of Music and asked us to put that on his gravestone and we've yet to do that. So um, (laughs) uh, we're leaving that decision for the future. But that was his request. Anyway, but then what happened was, 1998, I was actually driving uh, across Australia with an Australian girl, and we stopped in one of those petrol stations that has, like, a house attached to side to it in the middle mm. of the outback, absolutely in the middle of nowhere, and her aunt and uncle ran it, and we were going to stay there for the night, and they were so excited that they got visitors that they'd gone out and hired Titanic on DVD. God knows where they got it from. They'd drive 200 miles to do it. So I started to watch it and I hated it so much, I, uh, but I was polite. That I actually pretended to fall asleep during it because I couldn't watch it anymore. I have seen another chunk of it one Christmas when my mum was watching it and she nagged me to watch it with her and I watched 20 minutes after which she said the immortal words, I don't know where I went wrong with you. So <laughs> um, this is what the first time. What was happening on screen when that happened? <laughs> this is the first time that I've seen it all the way through. So that was interesting. That said, it's incredibly long. And given that it's a historical epic, I think the story that frames it, which takes up the first 20 minutes, could just fuck off and we could have a much shorter film. But they The first it. 20 minutes? It takes up like the first two hours. The first 20 minutes is just them meeting the old lady. Oh, that, the yeah, OC Rose. Yeah, Rose. Yeah. What is Bill Paxton doing? Why is he a pirate? And why do they <laughs> keep... Bill Paxton? Yeah. Why do we have that story framed as she's telling it, but there are scenes that she isn't in? And also, when they cut back to it, why do they all look interested? Why aren't they all going, fucking hell, when is this woman going to shut up? Going on Where's the fucking diamonds? Exactly. Exactly that. So, obviously, it is the famous tale of the sinking of the Titanic. It's about the, probably the third version of this. The, certainly the most famous, the big screen version of it. I have to say now, I did not enjoy it as much as I thought I wouldn't enjoy it. Because it has a lot of those... Let's go to the comedy accents. I got to America. It's just so <laughs> awful. Yeah, he doesn't even get a surname. Iceberg. Right ahead. <laughs> it's absolutely terrible. And I also really, really hate the historical irony. As I mentioned, the Picasso wouldn't amount to a thing, will he? Yeah. It's just that stuff tries to be a bit mad. But I do know that you, you liked it, Mick. So I want you to tell me what you like. On the comedy accents, I noticed that they've done that thing again that they sometimes do. In th- You know, like how um, they made... What the fuck was he called? Antoine de Antoine de Con? I don't know how you say his name. I'm not French. The man from who wasn't Jean Paul Gaultier on Eurotrash. Antoine de Oh, I know who you mean. Yeah. You know, you know how they made him put on like a really, really, really French accent because that's what they thought like the people wanted to hear of a Frenchman. Basically, and they, and they were right. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so we've done. That I personally thing. wanted garlic around his neck or onions and a stripy shirt. Yeah, and like, on a bicycle yeah. at all times. <laughs> But um, what they've done is they've got so there's a so it's got Craig Kelly in it. I noticed who is of course English, the guy from Queer as Folk who latterly was on like a bunch of less significant things, right? So and he's got a comedy accent as well. So they've done that thing where they've gone. This is what the people want. They want English people who talk like this all the time, <laughs> but oh, like slightly worse than governor. that. Exactly. So they've done that again. Yeah. Agreed. Which is what I did the whole way across America. 
by the way, when I was cycling. <laughs> Hello, I'm English. I'm from London. What, to a certain extent, that is what you sound. The minute you step outside of the UK, you're like, wowzers, I sound like the Queen. And I absolutely don't. But within context in your surroundings, you do. Yeah. Yeah. I found personally, like, a lot of the dialogue was absolutely <laughs> appalling, I would say. And their early bantering where for the four people who haven't seen this, I'm sorry, guys, I've left you. You're now a gang of four people. Is a very posh bird. Pretty pretty rich girl is what she's called, played by Kate Winslet, meets a rough diamond played by... He's a bit of Saucy Ruffington. Yeah, <laughs> exactly that, by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. And they have some excruciating banter at the start that's oh. really, it wants to be the Philadelphia story. But it's not funny, and therefore she just comes across as exceptionally rude. The bit where she says, spit like a man, I died inside. Yeah. But there's some plot holes in it that I don't really understand. There's a bit where they get in a lift and she gives the guy the finger and they're going down. Uh, They constantly go down when the ship is flooding, and I'm like, you need to be going up, guys. But they go down, and then he runs down the stairs. And the lift that's operated like that beats him down the stairs, which makes no logical sense whatsoever. It's it's an electric lift. He just pulls the handle and then it goes down. Right, but it's still very slow moving. Yeah. Um, I think they go down quite a lot of stairs, like what would be the equivalent of of stairs. Yes, it is. Um, It's quite tight. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) there's just a couple of bits that really annoy me. You know, like when he's trying to get the key in the thing and she keeps going, hurry, Jack. And I'm like, has shouting hurry ever made anyone go any faster (laughs) at anything? So there are some bits that I really, really didn't like about it, but I'm going to say there are some bits that I really liked about it. Obviously, Kathy, Kathy Bates. 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 Forgot uh, she was in it. As, as Molly Brown, who herself is, is worth a three-hour film because she's, in real life, was such an interesting woman. Who is she a real person? Yeah. yeah. Brand new information. Do, do you know that no one ever called her Molly? She was always Margaret until after her death, and she was never yeah. called unsinkable in her life. Exactly. Um, and it was in oh, a film she got Molly called... Brown. Yeah, in a, it was that sort of Hollywood gave her that name. But actually, she was a massive feminist and human rights supporter. She's a philanthropist. She's a really, really interesting woman. I watched this film once in 1997, and to be honest, I haven't really thought about it ever since. I'd never made the connection. But obviously, it looks lovely, because that boat is lovely. But I would say I would rather spend... I went to the Titanic Museum in Belfast, and that was a better use of three hours, I think, than watching this. But there you go. Mick. Hello. I'm here representing Titanic okay. and James Cameron. Um, I don't love it, but I think it stands up as a good film. I can totally see why people utterly fell in love with it. And while I find the romance between Rose and Jack really schmaltzy, it's very, very saccharine. I still think it works, and why I think it works, and obviously this is just my opinion, is that we've all heard about Titanic and the tragedy and can kind of quote the numbers and when it happened and how awful it was. But I actually think it works really well at putting personality to the people who died. And I think it made it it makes it quite real, even though it's obviously like Hollywood glitzy mm. stuff. Also it reminded me, and this is a much more shallow observation, just how fit uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was. And he has not aged well at all, but he was uh he was quite the heartthrob. I think he looks the same, just a bit more bloated. Mm, yeah, he's, he's definitely got what I would call, but not maybe to his face, coke bloat going on. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I thought he's been in some water, like loads of water <laughs> since Titanic. No, but he was he was quite the... I can see why there was a lot of fuss. Ah, he never really did it for me. 
No, not really for me either. In fact, I didn't actively enjoy watching Leonardo DiCaprio in anything. Oh, apart from the Basketball Diaries, which is probably one of the earliest things he did, until The Departed. It took me a long time to warm to Leonardo DiCaprio. I loved Romeo and Juliet when I was a teenager. Like, but I didn't How come love you, this. Yeah, I was going to say that's odd that if you... Because I think their romance, mm. Cameron plays it almost like a Romeo Juliet, that sort of yeah. level of Shakespearean. Young people fall in love in like thirty seconds, yeah. and then it's all that it's all consuming. Even when the, you're literally just sinking into Davy Jones's locker. So I remember watching this in 1997. I didn't watch it at the cinema, which I think probably would, you know, the scale of it and whatever. Mm. Like I'm it would have, it would have made like a big difference watching it mm. on a big screen. I think, but I do remember even at the time I was what. 15, 14 or 15. Uh, is that good maths? Yes, I think so. Um, and You're asking the wrong people. I know. I was just like, how old am I? Um, so I remember even at the time thinking, wow, this is a bit fucking long, isn't it? Like, I didn't, I didn't it's, it's really... Like than, it's like three and a half hours. It's really long. But I think that's in the grand scale of disaster movies. Tower in Inferno is three and a half oh, hours. Oh, I mean, I, I, I agree, but this felt like... It genuinely felt like three and a half hours. I did send a message mm. uh, when I was two hours into this saying, how, how much longer? Um, the boat hasn't even fucking sunk. I couldn't believe how long it took to, to fucking sink. I couldn't believe they made us watch like an hour and a half of it. See, I, I, I think basically my fundamental problem with it is it's too long. It's just too long. And And you know where I stand on this. I think like most films really should just be an hour and a half long and then it would all be fine. But... Three and a half hours is like, you've got to be really, really, really good to hold, like, my attention for three and a half hours because I don't have a particularly, like, good attention span. Yeah. But I should have been well into that. Yeah, I mean, it, it should have been. For me, it's like, I don't do romance, do I? I don't like romance. That so it's, it's I look at a, a film that is three and a half hours long and has the budget of this and, you know, the effects like budget that it has and the cast. I mean, Yossa finally gets a job and that went really badly. But to have that kind of great cast and everything and then to basically squander it on a romance. I mean, there's so many people. That, that the interesting thing about the Titanic is how many really interesting people died on the Titanic. I would assume that for a lot of people that sinking on the Titanic would possibly be the thing that was like the, the, the major event mm. of their life. But there's actually loads of people who were on that boat that... That actually, them being on the Titanic when it's sort of a footnote to the rest of the life. Guggenheim, who apparently did go down, yeah. like as he did with his suit on. Also, George Steed, the British journalist, was on there, and the incredibly interesting stuff about him. So, yeah, I would rather have just not watched people mooning at each other. But I get what you say, Mickey, and I agree with you that it does make it a lot more human, and it does make like a, a political point, I guess, about like how the lower classes were, were treated and whatever. Mm, that it, they weren't still locked relevant. in, that is a lie. But apart from that, it's pretty historically accurate as yeah. well. Oh, the empty boats is, is a true Yeah, thing. but like, so the third class passengers weren't yeah. shut in, that has been debunked. Um, but obviously the death rates show that more third class passengers died than first class passengers. Mm. Yeah. Um, but that's, they had a lot further to get up and try to get off the boat. And as Hannah's just said, the, the fact about there not being enough lifeboats is spot on. So actually, I, I think it's, I like that it's quite his. It's pretty historically accurate, as well. And then he's just built this story around. I also think the effects still stand up, apart goods, from when yeah. they're blue, yeah. and that's a little bit obvious. But I think the, the break when that shit. boat breaks in two, yeah, that's steel. And I th- it still made me go fuck. The iceberg's quite underwhelming. 
I don't know that you'd have thought that if you were. Well, well it's no, a lot of it's underwater. Yeah. Most of it's underwater. Yeah. I mean, that is the the problem with icebergs, isn't it? They are quite underwhelming until they whelm you. Is that a word? Yeah. When you're whelmed by yeah. them, it goes pretty badly. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned Bernard Hill as the captain. I think his performance is beautiful. So understated, this man who's pushed by damn bosses, but then obviously has that hubris that he's going to make his name. And just when it all hits home to him, just he doesn't say anything, but it's incredible. Yeah, but it's t- tiny. It's a tiny mm. like portion of it. But I think the scale of it, you do see other people's reactions to stuff. I think Rose's mum... And her relationship with Molly Brown, like yeah. she's awful, but she plays it yeah, really, really like well. Yeah, like the bit where she's sort of having words of her, like, "Do you want us to like lose all of our our fine things and whatever?" And sort of making the point about what will happen to them if she doesn't go and nod Billy Zane. Is like she she does play it really well. I think she's great in it. I do think there are some really good performances. Yeah, in it. it's and just it's not Kate Winslet. <laughs> I don't. Do you think Kate Winslet is bad in it? I just I find her I, so irritating. It's hard for me I, to. I don't mind her, but. I find this it irritating in this. this. I don't find really, her. She didn't really do it for me in this. I, I feel like it's a, it's a pitched very much as Catherine Hepburn-esque. don't think she pulls off what she's trying to pull off. I mean, if she wasn't aiming for Catherine Hepburn, then maybe not. But that's every, everything that I watch about it, The sort of the, that very sort of bantery dynamic that starts with them mm. is very Hepburn. Um, and it didn't really work for me. And Billy Zane is funny looking, right? It always looks like he's wearing loads of makeup. Like eyeliner. Yeah. Eyeliner. He looks like a new romantic. Maybe he's like Ray Liotta and he just looks like that. Yeah, Ray Liotta always looks like he's got mascara yeah. on. Mm. thought he was all right in it, Billy Zane. Because he was very, very unlikable. Yeah. He's quite panto. But he does look like but... he's wearing makeup. Yeah, he does, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. he yeah, I think he just has very dark eyelashes, yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. Anyway, should we go to that Sure. Sheet? Which I'm going to say again for the sake of it. I don't think I've done very yeah, well on, but not done very well on this. Yeah, saying that every week. And then winning. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say old person sacrifice that they sp- you do specifically see an old couple decide to stay in bed. And although they don't do it necessarily to save other people, the presence of them being in bed like and choosing to die means that one more person get- got on a life race. So can I have it? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. Well, hang upside down, even though I'm working <laughs> on my upper body strengths when they all have to hang on those bars when the you know yeah we just got we got a power tower in our back room now and i'm practicing i'm trying to improve my upper body strength and just hanging for 10 seconds is knackering yeah what is a power tower uh it's just a big bit of like sort of gym equipment that you can have in your house if only we hadn't bought substandard kit. Mm. Well, I mean, they definitely went for the cheaper option of the on the life ropes. Yeah, that's totally. Like yeah, that. So I'm having that. So I'm up to three. There are a lot of fancy hairdos gone bad in this. That's just water, though. Is that what you mean? Because they get wet. No, but I mean, someone who's clearly spent some money on a do and then later you see them and it's all bedraggled and there are yeah. bits out of it. I mean, I imagine that's not their priority at the time. Yeah. Cassandra ignored. Well, the guy that stands at the, the the guys designed it that stands at the bar and his drink falls off. And I was like, you should have drunk that before it fell off, mate. But um, he was Cassandra. He was saying that they needed more boats, and he was ignored. So five uncanny prediction of real life disaster. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> that would be cheating. Absolutely. Adopt brace position. Well, like when they're all hanging on that at the top of the boat, I'm thinking they were probably in brace position. Does the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio only sleeps with him in 30 years his junior count as a shame star? 
No, because no, he's not really he's not shamed really for it. Shamed. Okay, it's just normal. Isn't no it? problem. Screaming cowardice. Actually, everyone's being very bold in this, aren't they? No, no Billy Zane's some... a prick. Billy Zane's really cowardly. He like steals a but child is he to get on yeah, that boat. Does. Yeah, okay, I'm having massively that. cowardly. Yeah. Dramatic strings. This is the very definition <laughs> of dramatic strings. And the band played on. It's been an honour playing with you tonight, gentlemen. Yeah, but where are they going to the toilet? In the sea, I'm guessing. So yeah. uh, we can have that. So that means I've got eight. I've got eight. Have you pre-disaster shag? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Bit of car humping. Also, actually, just to say, that was something I thought was quite a sweet touch. When you see, like, they're clearly, like, she is supposed to be a virgin because she's not having it off with Billy Zane and it's that time. He is the one who was vulnerable after they've had sex for the first time. She goes, you all right? And he goes, I'll be OK. And it's, I just thought it was interesting. Whether it was meant as that, I just thought it was quite interesting. She's quite confident and it's like, oh, you know, yeah, she banged. drags him through the back window, doesn't she? We've banged, yeah. And he's like, oh, God, all trembly. You know. I'm sitting right next to a glass window and I have a horrible fear that a hand's just going <laughs> to, a sweaty hand's just going to come up yeah, and slap on there. Yeah, they were so sweaty. Yeah. yeah, also, it wouldn't have steamed up because that back window was open, but yeah. let's not go into <laughs> technicalities. So pre-disaster shag, nature, you cruel mistress. Iceberg! Damn bosses, having that. Mid-disaster punch-up, there's shitloads of them. People die. Women and children first. Absolutely. Could title be a porn film title? Yes. Titanic. Captain willing to go down with ship? Yeah, he does. Quite dramatically. And there is no brilliant plan that can't be fucked up with the addition of people because they just kept storming those lifeboats. So yeah. I too have eight. I don't think I've got nearly as many as that. Um, Brexit analogy, yes. We're I mean, just the, just the iceberg. <laughs> there you go, Jim. I think it, it looks like you... it's split 50-50, but I think it was 48-52. <laughs> well, I was going to go with we're selling you a dream and actually all the poor people die. Yeah. Um, it turns out we don't care about them. Anyway, um, there's no president. There's so many, so many piss poor English accents. Um, there's no helicopters. Uh would we say it's an event that's too important to cancel? They're steaming ahead to get to where they're going no, to. There's no, no event. There's no event. There's I mean, the event is like, arriving and yeah, they're steaming ahead and he's ignoring. They said, let's not evacuate until the hem party's yeah, done. Okay, yeah. well, I would have given myself that. But anyway, um, provably bad science. I don't think there is any. Is Are there any weather geeks? No. Not really. No. This disaster saved our relationship. Well, I think their relationship was already there, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, and, and it ruined our relationship well, with both Billy Zane and her mother. So, and, um, and also, he died. So. Yeah, <laughs> don't use the lifts for fuck's sake. Yes, I'm. I think that's fair. Because I don't know because it, they were all right in the lifts. They did use the lifts, and they were okay. Yeah. What about the bit where? Oh no, that wasn't a lift, was it? It was just stairs when mm. he couldn't open the yeah, gate. Yeah. Oh, all right. Hurry, Jack! Hurry! Um, hurry! Burning isn't really. Thanks. I was going really slow till you shot yeah. hurry in my ear. Yeah, that's not added uh, any stress to the situation at all. I don't think there's any cameos. There's a sob. There's quite a few sobbing children. So I think that's like what three, basically. Wowzers! It's because there's no helicopters. Usually, that's where Jen cleans but up. Do you know what I'm really pleased about now? What? It's it's done. You've watched it. It's like washing the bath or like getting your tax return finished. What was the wound like underneath the plaster? Yeah, it's pretty horrible, but you know, the air's getting to it. It's healing. I don't have to watch that. I don't think it yet. pulled out as many hairs as you thought it would. Yeah, I mean. I had a lot of toilet breaks, though, during that film. It's a yeah. lot of water. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a bad, in summary, it's not a bad film. I just don't like it. Yeah. I think I think that's, I think that's fair, fair enough. I don't think it's a bad film. I think it's a good film, and I think given that it's like 
20 odd years old. Wait a minute. Yeah, that's good maths. 20 odd years old. It really stands up. If you had like an afternoon with your family, not you because you don't like it, you just like, right, yeah, well, just America just repeatedly say to me, I don't know where I went wrong with you. Yeah, I don't know where I, I went so. wrong with okay, you. So was she fastening you into a corset yeah. as she did this? Were you saying no to Billy Zane? <laughs> I was just saying romance, boke. What we do? So what you we get to choose next week. No, we've got eight each. Well, it's we okay, so we're fighting the death. We've actually she worked on Titanic. <laughs> yeah. I I'd Titanic. like to see Contagion if it's findable. Yeah. Well, we'll know the answer to that. If it's not, and we'll watch something else. If it's not, could we maybe have Outbreak as a backup plan? I actually quite liked that when it was on. The monkey and yeah. Matthew Broderick. Oh, then I would absolutely get, haven't we seen this guy in a disaster film before? Yeah. Um, but let's try for Contagion. Okay. Standard issue for all women.